And good afternoon. It is 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We're located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. This is Finding a Voice, a spoken word program airing here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well, www.cfrc.ca. And... Uh, in the first hour, in fact, I've got a long event that essentially fills both hours uh, from a November 15th Queen's University event called Who Needs a Poem? Uh, initiated and led by Queen's Fall term writer-in-residence, Kanisha Lubrin. Uh, you'll hear readings by and a discussion with Robin Richardson, Leslie Billow, and Kai Killow. And, of course, Kanisha herself. And then in the second hour from that same event, you'll hear the Q&A that followed the readings. I may have to fade the last couple of minutes or so out. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, uh, I'm going to play these without interruption. They're both almost an hour long, so you won't hear from me again until just before the top of the next hour. So uh, the usual announcement... Occasionally, some poetry, spoken word, or music played on the show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So, here we go. Uh, first, again, this was an event uh, uh, created by uh, Queen's writer, fall term writer in residence, uh, Kanisha Lubrin, and uh, you're going to hear her introduce the guests that I just mentioned. Let's go ahead and just do it. Here we go. Hello. 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 slavery, colonialism, and imperialism. 
these Americas are built on erasure, and we bring these histories with us when we enter any room, and we must bring them into view. With this knowledge of history, we enter here in the hopes of making a different world. So I am here uh, in the trust um, that I am among people, peers, learners, poets, in celebration of poetry. I uh, bring with me knowledge of how fortunate I am to count myself in this gathering, and still to admit absolutely nothing about poetry or the poet, is to make room for the present, I think, and for the past and the future of what the life in poetry might mean. Um, and we all occupy these spaces differently. I'm not alone in this. Uh, maybe all of you come here with some variation of that knowledge, with reservations about where you fit in, if at all. Um, and there's a certain eagerness to have something of a presence in the transformational power of language. Uh, and maybe you disagree altogether with this. That's okay too. Auden, for example, um, is often invoked to cast doubt or assume something of the nature of doubt in the work of the poet. We hear poetry makes nothing happen. It's a lot. So what in this can actually reveal the designs of really what makes us human and non-human in this particular saying and what happens in the events of the world? What does it mean to be in poetry? To be well, overwhelmed, underwhelmed in poetry? What is Auden rejecting in that statement? It might be the same thing that Audre Lorde rejects when she says, I am deliberate and afraid of nothing. Um, it might be the thing that Adrian Rich dives into in the wreck that was set many, many years before hers. It might be the same the thing Lucille Clifton uh, celebrates when she says something has tried to do to kill me and has failed. Uh, or Gwendolyn Brooks, a whole a note of desecration. Or Dion Rand, to think again what it means that I am here. Um, and so what does the body hold if it's always trailing the events of the world when we enter a phrase like poetry makes nothing happen? So think of Auden's phrase somewhat as a terminal expression, a grand embarrassment, maybe, in the notion that poetry is this sort of great ethical event in language that's supposed to elevate all of us. I think what gets lost is the kind of paradoxical context of the phrase, because it comes from an elder in memory of WBA, right? And so if we turn the phrase on its head, we end up with poetry makes nothing, poetry makes, or poetry makes poetry. And in that, what we have is a friend who is facing the immense loss of someone very dear to them. So, of course, in the face of, of death, for example, poetry makes nothing happen, right? It doesn't mean that poetry is itself nothing. Or maybe it's a kind of nothing we don't really know how to understand yet. So, for our purposes here today, the question is, who needs a poem? And I'm really pleased to introduce Kei Kawo, 
who is a novelist, poet, and sound performer. His most recent book of poetry is Magnetic Equator of McCullough and Stewart. And his upcoming work is a collection of short stories titled Dominoes at the Crossroads, out of the Fayetteville Press in 2020. His writing has been scored for small and large ensemble musical performances and has toured Canada and Europe. I performs regularly in both solo and group context with our borders, within our borders and beyond. Robin Richardson, over here, is the author of three collections of poetry, including Sit How You Want, winner of the Trillium Book Award, named one of the best books of the year by CBC, and is editor-in-chief at Lenola Review. Her work has appeared in, Sal in Salon Poetry and American Poetry Review, Lenola's <coughs> Hazlitt, Best Canadian Poetry, and Tin House, among others. She holds an MFA in writing from Sarah Lawrence College, has won the Fortnite Poetry Prize in the UK, and the John B. Santorini Award, the Joan T. Baldwin Award, and has been shortlisted for the CBC Walrus and Arc Poetry Prizes, among others. Leslie Bello is an Irish Nabiquet writer, mother of five, educator, and activist from the Ojibwe Nation of Ketikun City. Garden River First Nation, located outside of Pawating, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. She's a PhD candidate in the Indigenous Studies Department at Trent University of Peterborough, Ontario, focusing on studying Indigenous feminine literature and narratives, and is currently a pre-doctoral fellow at Queen's University. She's been on staff teaching Indigenous literature, creative writing, and theater at Algoma University in Sault Ste. Marie a PhD teaching and research assistant at Trent University in Indigenous Studies Department in Oral History, as well as the History of Indigenous Dance Theater. Will you be dancing today? No. Leslie <laughs> <laughs> writes fiction, essays, and poetry, and is the author of The Color of Dry Bones, a collection of short fiction published by Kagan Adams Press, swept by your Scribbling Press, the winner of the Pat Lounder Award for Quiet Collection, Indian Land, published by ARP, as well as other poetic, fictional, academic, and blog, blog publications, both nationally and internationally. Just co-edited uh, co a dossier of I Don't Know More writing for Matrix Magazine, as well as CV2, recently moderated the Kingston Writers Fest and Tales from the Bush at Queen's University, as well as reading her fiction and poetics throughout Turtle Island. Without further of all of this, <laughs> we're going to start with Robin, and then Leslie and myself, and then I will read. Great, okay, <clears throat> thank you so much for that. I just, I'm bursting with wanting to talk about who reads a poem after your introduction. I'm like, I have so much to say. But I'll, I'll read first. <laughs> um, actually, four books, I just, I just this is kind of art and new poetry, so I might, depending on how my time goes, read one of the poems that's in there. Um, but I'll talk about what I'm reading now, which is all new work. Um, if you're familiar with my last books, if how you want, there's a, a lot of um, trauma exploration. And coming out of that, and I think as part of the healing of the book, my new book is called Susie's Petals. Anyone a big fan of um, It's a Wonderful Life, the Christmas movie? Okay, I'm, I'm so happy to talk about why it's called that and what's so great about it. But um, anyways, I've, I've just like opened up into this, this weird state of total appreciation for um, unconditional love. <laughs> So the, it's like I'm, I'm kind of going a little bit in 
further into the into the darkness of the things I was exploring in the previous book, but with a whole lot more light. So I am much more excited about this work because there's it's not, it's not as much in the trenches. There's something positive coming out of it, and I'm excited to share that. Um, so. Yeah, you'll see, I'm gonna read one short poem that I just wrote and then a, a sort of longer piece that I think is my ex explanation of how we can use individuals to feel a kind of universal love. Um, yeah, you'll see when I read it and I'll, I'll give a bit of a feel to it. So the first one is called The Way Things Work. After admitting to oneself that one is not lovely, object is not an object at all, not coveted, scrumptious, palpable. After the party diminishes, and in light you see no self, but the bloodshot eyes of everyone you love, there is a formality to it. The way there is a formality to physics free from judgment. My friend crying over a meatless burger in fluorescent light, after the marriage she regrets, the house too far to walk away, too grand. She asks if she is a bad person, and physics says a thing is only bad, as bad as it feels. I don't know. I know my feelings are orchestral, and that everything I'm feeling is perhaps unquenchable except by ceasing, and that's okay. My friend is alone in a bathroom the size of my first apartment, praying she isn't pregnant. It's her bathroom, it's her God, I love her. There is no container the size of this. There is nothing the size of this. And the next poem I'll read. This was, this came out of a trip to, I, I was in the Dominican Republic and I invited some friends. And I don't know, I, I, I became, like I had this almost like constant ecstasy experience when I was there. And what the friends who were with me were very, or like one in particular, I'll say that was, this shut him down to the point that I couldn't speak to him and I couldn't speak and I couldn't share language with anyone else in the vicinity. So I spent two weeks in ecstatic frustration with this person who could only engage in small talk. Um, so it created, it just like, and it just kept aggravating my ecstasy. So I kept getting more stimulated. And this, this poem ex it kind of poured out of me after that experience. I, it, I've never been, I've never felt so intensely. Um, so I was using this person as a platform for my feelings, and then of course as soon as I was gone, that, that person became irrelevant, but the feelings were very relevant. The various painful and euphoric distributions of attention on a beautiful night in Guayacanes. I wouldn't mind the way these legs carried this eye too far to see it, launched it out and on its back and floating like driftwood, hurricaned off insufficient shelter. I am no roof, no door. I am these waving bones, skin, cotton, and some perception, some boundless beating on the salt, the black, the numerous potentials, the fisherman with his motor and machete lit like a diamond. Longing is impractical, I know. And yet I want to make me formless as it is, as I know we are love. You were high or stoic and contented with the other women in their nonchalance, the plastic Adirondacks. And you watched the fire, and you worried, and I stopped being I became the lot of you. The lapping up of persons on a planet made of misconceptions. See, the one with the big, beautiful breasts is you, love, and your form. Its impenetrable ease is all of us, is I, 
as the eye drifts further out to sea forgets itself, and all this having something to do with you fixing your coffee, clearing the table, reading the book, breathing, so well paced, something built to receive an eye like me. You made longing to a thing I used to look through, see the truth. You came eventually and stood concerned. I came to you and walked beside you, sopping and alive. You told the women you pulled me out, you were a hero, and I sat in the sand by the fire in my cotton and bones and skin and love, and you, love, went on talking. Two. Over-identification with the gecko, the crane, with Jose who sweeps with his tight hug, the one that never would have ended had we not been human. What I mean is love. What I mean is all these facets of an asymptotic singular is please just hold me. Please, the fence is being painted, being decades up and falling, and the tide knows but says nothing, and that grain of sand, etc. The trash in which we saw both illness and a chance to care. I want to heal this place, you said. I want to heal some woman too, not you, and I confess I felt celestial. My wings unlatched and strung up on the line, you shirtless in their shade, oblivious and stunning, and a crack in the center of the world, no, in the center of this island in my chest. My few words, you're even fewer. Who is the stingray? Who is the horizon? The acoustic songs played far too softly. Who is Jose with his foot on the firewood? My foot there too, our sense of teamwork our knuckles now of fire ants and labor, our love of labor, our varied relationships to divinity through the lifting and the splitting of this wood, through its burning. Who is a child who in the morning finds its embers smoking on the beach and drowns them in a fullness we are not yet? Three. <clears throat> the washing of the children's feet, someone else's children. They're scattered to the rocks to dry like lizards. Little glitches in the matrix shouldn't be this good. The itch, this running, this song so bright, this hand in the ocean, in the shell of an exile, from some low-key hell, in the heart of an angel named Fearful. Named, I'm just not sure, the lick of the world on the back of my neck, the finger of the world inside, as though the world knows one night stands, as though the world would somehow up and leave and send a smile some days later, as though it was scared too. It is scared. And the smile is a series of gestures. And the gestures spell help me, spell go away, jump in my ocean and die a little and backstroke to the end of everything you know and then just sink and uphold you. And I did, and it did. And the people of the world all up and walked away and the light of the world went soft, went softly up, and all the angels named fearful, all the angels named still please hold me, the averted eyes, the turned backs, the speechlessness, the cautious conclusion of bonding, and the light had no name, and the people of the world gave it a glance, and the love of the world flared up for a beat, then fell, and I fell but different. I was in the sand again and digging, and the children dug too and the buckets filled with water filled, and the lights, and our hole was a halo, and the halo was the world with its inheritance and its beautiful mouth which said nothing. Four. I am a bower bird. I built you this body, 
and then split it on a nail, and then built another body. Inside that, and you watched, without watching. And you thanked me politely, and took the first body, and the second, and went outside with the coffee. Sat with the bodies not really looking at the bodies, handing them grains of this and that, handing them rum and a blueberry, and a quiet sentiment about how it's okay to be sad. And my bowerbird body is lengthened to a lady's, but less so, but scuffed and broken on the building of a palace made of please, please, please. And also of the nails I split against again and again until a lovely, lonely, rusted fray, until tentacled and alien and wrapped around a pearl diver in a print on the wall of a man on acid who is changing his life. You are the only, you are only a man in a chair on a beach by a house in the impression of stable, which come on love, that's a laugh, which because you believe it becomes a bird but grounded and not losing your mind to the every damn thing not lost at all. This is the final five. It wasn't about you. It was abolishing itself on the rocks of a you-like shore. It was enjoying its crash, the crying on the floor, the spread legs, some drool, which was lovely in that it didn't ask permission. It was about the dawns of masturbation under the evenings of can't get close. The thing is about itself, its own experience of want. But how spectacular, the low gold moon too. The spectacular realization after the plane landed, after the sand cleared from inside the luggage, the dead old woman buried and her eye now up and like a child, open.
about ideas of trauma and, and movement away from trauma as well, and I find that's kind of similar in my own writing as well because um, it's, it's such a movement and it's such a powerful uh, being and something that has so many different um, levels. So I'm going to um, read something. It's a new work that I'm writing. I'll read something out of um, my book, Indian Land. As you can see, I have five children, so every one of my books is filled with crayons, but this is the only one that has, doesn't have writing inside. I usually just walk them away. So this one is actually from Indian Land, but I'm going to start reading um, something that I had sent to Kanisha. It's from my new work, and it's um, it's about um, it's called Awensi, and it's that in Ojibwe that means um, or Anishinaabe Kwe, or Anishinaabe Moan, It means wild animal. So I started thinking about um, the spiritual aspects that I understood when I was a child, and how they they still persist within me today. And so I, I've been, I haven't really approached that too much in my older works because I was afraid to because it was deeply connected to my, my father, which I could only write about him in a certain way. Now that I'm in my mid-40s, I can look and, and understand that in a way that's important to me without placing it on somebody else. So um, it's called Awensi, and that's wild animal. She falls. It is all different once the world speaks. Bijan. Gidumbikuzink. Whisper outside, trails crooked followed. Footprints, the window edge where love sits. Bijan igu anijagan, can you hear me clearing my heart from you? Burrowing, easy to crawl inside of. Vacancy, open a small mouth. Every crevice swallowing, her hands loosening. Den way we see. We tried to bury her, our little hands so quick, so bored with each other, the long-armed trees that knew our names. Caverns are ravenous, trying to turn the page of a book. That trail too dark, and nobody wants to open her story. Mouths skimming, her drippings a tongue as wide as the old trails. Her ear against the pulse of the sand, so dug, so dug, so new. Caving, grab my hand over the rock sounds. A grandmother holds the side of a tent opened. Footprints, the imprint of a stone when you breathe. Awishna, the low pant, growling. Hips, swallowing your sound when you strain to say my name. That wind, I still dream I hear you. That sound, she splays spine-straightened stories. Look what's in your hand, it's not holding me. The half-moon rustles, a half-whimper, curling underwater voices. Little bones are my pillow, and memory is my blanket. I walked into your arms, she hears the right things. My sisters laughing, their long mouths not knowing fear. Trees, faces, silence, burrowed, sewed into your walk, that sang our stories for us. Awensi, my daddy loved you. You ate each plate, you sat with him. A Wednesday, we tried to eat each other's footprints. And that's the first story. <coughs> poem, sorry. I, I see poetry that there's so many stories layered inside of poetry. And so um, I'll read something from my, but this, the other ones, I mean, it's quite political. I was started writing about um, the railroad tracks. We grew up right beside, in between St. Mary's River and the railroad tracks. And my dad was always had, uh, he was an activist and he was always, talking about dynamite and blowing up the economy and putting, you know, and we used to take dynamite walks, he used to follow. And, you know, they were interesting to me. And, I mean, 
nothing really that I recall ever blew up, but we knew how to do it, which was like, the important thing. And, and I appreciated that sort of activist lifestyle. It was something that really um, carried me into, you know, when I was working with them. Um, that taught me in a way to appreciate, you know, the discord that we feel and the non-discord. So here's a poem. Actually, this is a very old, this is the oldest poem that I have in, in the book Indian Land. And I wrote this, it was so many years ago, I think I was um, in my undergrad, and, and it was just, um, it reminded me, there was, we used to have these dolls, my grandmother had these dolls, and they're called corn husk dolls, they didn't have faces, they were made out of corn husks. And, um, and she used to have so many of them, and that's what we play with, but they fall apart. But she's, you know, and we used to ask, where are their faces? Well, they, they weren't made with faces, and that's what she used to make her children, she had 13, to play with. So it's called Corn Husk Dolls. And we gathered. Baskets swelled into sunrise and we gathered. Yarrow colored our fingers, inhaled our sweat into its spine. A damp heat had started and our men were still sleeping. And we gathered, dawn pressing us closer to home. Your woman breath next to mine. Sister fingers scraped new root, drank hawthorn flesh with our hands. Delivered summer buds and stems into the bitten bark. Baskets swelled into sunrise, edged over the foothills where our men slept like the dead beside our babies, wrapped in tanned deerskins, beside their corn husk dolls that were hanging pelts over their fading bodies. Sunrise and we gathered, yarrow greened our nails, seeped into our flesh, our footpaths broke the earth into trail. Branches brushed over our cheeks, hands led us back. Our men waited for us, raised their hands hot with the sweat of bone to pull the flap for us to pull us between fur and thigh, our baskets emptied by the door flap, fur and thigh to break the dawn. We gathered, their breaths soft as sumac, their hands deep heat, our bodies lit between brown flesh and cedar boughs. Us women picked, foxglove, scarlet sage, water lilies, juniper, goldenrod, trillium, white gora, until we greened our nails, smudged their fleshes onto our palm skins rubbed milkweed round and round and round our hands, necks, arms, thick as a side swell of moon, until we are whitened, gauzed over beside the lush hue of noon. Our babies were squashed against us, flattening our breasts under our bear claw necklaces, scraping blood, ochre red. Washing our hands, we see a new boat on shore, wide prints leading outward towards the slant of our hills. We picked waiting for the break of grass, to crouch and wait, pointed, bone ready for battle. Our babies chewing roots on their shoulders until they, on our shoulders until they slept. We discovered them eating on smushed lake grass, their necks as white as dead cattail tips, lips tipped red with choke cherry blood. Hush, 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 and we pulled our babies closer, their cheeks as warm as the long, flat rocks of agua, lined in red, ochred red. We discovered them, red, with choke cherry blood, red, ochred red, crouched and waited, bone point hovered behind wrist, the wail of chijok in our minds, the taste of an old song lined our throats. Us women picked flowers, waiting for our men to find them, our babies to squash closely, Long, flat cheeks warmed against us, red clay brushing against the rock wall. Canoes edged along the ledges of superior, palms wet with red earth. The sound of history smudging into porous sandstone. And they watched us, 
the lines of our next curve of bear claw drying blood, the separation of flesh and sinew, the waft of burdock from our tongues. And we get, they watched as we gathered foxglove, scarlet sage, water lilies, juniper, goldenrod, white flora, watched, they watched. Baskets scented our flesh, greened our fingers, watched us, their hands together, necks as white as dead cattail tips, hands white-edged, hands, shh, hands, shh, shh, squashed, 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 squash, 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 hush, squash, hush, squash, hush, squash, hush, squash, hush, squash, hush, squashed, 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 hands, hands together, necks as white as dead cattail tips, hands squashing, red ochre, bare claw tip drawing blood, hush, hush. Us women carved bone together, sharpened jagged ridges with a slice of rock, sharp as the purity of daybreak, we carved around the children. Agogwazo, agogwazo, they sewed us together, blank as corn husk dolls. That was the condensed, condensed version. I had to take some out because it would have taken 15 minutes to write it, to read it. But that's one of the older ones. And so I'll read one more, and then we'll move on to Kinesia. So this one is a new one as well. It's, um, it's called Amico Wish. It's called the Beaver House, and it's short. We come up short somehow with the mothering, the splaying of time. Windows seem smaller now and take up more space. Each year, there's an invisible carpenter that comes and eats and gnaws at the sides of the frames like a beaver, urgently settling the water, teeth bared, hungry for time, bloody jowls, those pants, babies waiting, floating face up on Nive, little faces turned towards mommy, waiting, the sharp taste of love and urgency, chewing, chewing so fast, the blood on gums, coloring the water, looking like old clay and eyes on the shoreline. Oh. Oh, your soft head. Breaths, no sleep, and the world is silent. Those breaths. No sound with the crickets. Preparation is a sister. Her space is wide. Tail so vast, it makes wide, flapping sounds before morning. No one notices the way her teeth curve downward. Her body is a moon, widened, and she whispers herself to not get tired, don't get tired, don't get tired, but push of her babies, the way she howled, the way they suckled, the way she finally slept. Plating her face, screaming asleep, is a punching bag. The act of homing creates a sound in her blood that never goes away. Misqui, misquiwi. Underwater, her voice tastes digging, her paw so raw, the burying and sand, all of those shawls around her. And that. Uh, that's what I'll read today. <laughs> Thank you, Leslie. So, I will read one poem from Voodoo Hypothesis, and then I will read from the new work. Keepers of Paradise. This is a hand that intends to do its maker part. 
This is the clock turned back, 500 years. The river that runs from Eden mouth to rare, unsweetened mouth. I've logged the sour dawns of all my quiet into this body. It's crisis of fleeing nowhere, but nowhere is home. And reborn half-bled in our nighttime, diverging their sullen brethren, their patterns of vapor, rain, shadows on goat-eaten plains, in the Morse events of smallest things, in my new metropolis, away. I am a simple child then, a tilled sight of history. Call me Isobar, distraction in place of Earth. Call me tropical depression, where I regale to the world its problem of beating piles, pleading rivers, returning thorns to their abducted bush. I'd offer the wound night shuts behind my eyes. But enough. Here, Mondor divinize her song. Give these coon keepers of paradise a liminal eavesdrop. Here, ghostly algorithms translate these nights to bloom. So I have to give you some context for this. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm going to be doing this for the next few years. <laughs> give me strength. Uh, so the Disgrappist is a book-length poem written in the form or the structure of a seven-act play which foregoes all of the traditional uh, features of traditional playwriting. So the voices just fold into one another, and it's really one voice, um, presenting as the figure Jejun, which is kind of elliptical misspelling of Jejun, I, the young. Um, and it is a study in selfhood, as I call it, seven inquiries of the same. Uh, and we encounter the I, pronoun I, uh, in first person, second person, and third person throughout. Are you good? Are, you, are we disoriented, dizzy? No? Cool. All right, so this is from Act One, uh, and this is right after the second person singular I meets Jijun. Jijun has known I. They were children once. Children holding their heads up at the aquarium of ill-conceived enterprise. Let that be all you need to know. The dysgraphist must lend the mouth to the flood of oil beneath the Gulf of Mexico. Their waves doing their best to save us from America. The premonition of coins, given plumage, red, jean, the children who know their job know to never be done with answering the unanswerable. To never raise a hand or shield themselves against some agent of decay. Lithographic forms of having to commit. To commit to the speaking, bluer than perpetual lines of black tears. You meet I, now the elder one, 
wanting a haunting with Jiju. Though all of that is too much, too much to ask. It is difficult to live in the dark. I know the dark is difficult as abandoned artifacts. Abandoned artifacts like graveyards of ship in the blueprint of wrecked wars. Wrecked wars known to Jejun as the 11 lost in deep water horizon, oil and gas, ignited for 48 hours in 60,000 gallons of the dark. Permit an escape to the engineers still alive and breathe in this dark. Then stop immediately, man. Then hit I again. After 84 days of fascinating, be sure to offer milk. Then ask Jejun, will I cry if you die? Whether something of the pirates and all the ones they sold live there still. De causa natural, de causa nostra. Lay I, now the younger one, bear in thoughts, bear in eye complications. Jejun does not want it paid in simple time, but let I go. Given the choice now to speak, after 500 years of dysgraphia, that I approach the witness stand in any chosen language, that I bend into a touch of the supernatural, let that be all you need to know. Where the eye, the heart is bruised with unfeeling, to delay the organ's devotion to devotion is not belief, or it is. Calling I to walk out of the sea, all of the world hears the surf supply of laws. Here's Jejun swimming in, Jejun outlawed in the notes of 50 generations, far from that door of even more unopenings. How to pay for the vocal injury I feel at the end of the Gulf of Mexico, the one wreck. Seeds still in jars after a century. How the sea hacks the compass still. I feel how far is left to go. Sudan, Abaco, Aleppo, still. Before the self-same notes of dead musicians, consider I, more than the pen. And to have never thought of the notes as autumn ride. And to have never built a better world to inhabit or break. Speaking jejun, I has screwed up, I knows it. And how to pay for it instead. I hammers the joke's humorless record with a love, a marrow. And what is marrow? If not the loss of the right to scrub vain as words clean. The work is honorless, preoccupied with definition. The work is always to understand, of course. Why else the brain? Why else the heart sending blood upward? Why else here and everywhere, everything still erupting and unstable? Jiju knows it is other people who cry out on the news, who risk loan and life on treacherous water. A homing to spread the ears on a couch and be caught in a comforting web of verdict. Later, Jejun leaves her eyes with a letter that they be laid down on pillowed pills. Dear suicide, dear vex, dear sex, two minded, something better, physio, music. So when they find the eyes and they say, Look, someone's eyes are left here, here also is a whole banana parsimony in two hands. In the mind, release I as though the birds 
sure to return across this distance exposed to the sunlight, even as the bridge will be gone, even as the mothers and all the landmarks for rest declare the mainland, the just waking fort of beasts. You are so seen, so clear, Jijun, given to I before a court. Jijun understands the signature will wipe I out. I, as the tobacco's heir, the tongue-tied heaviness of striking this act of permanent residence with debris given to the children who ripened to vitamin loss. Somewhere far off from the land, from Manzanilla, who else is a mothering anagram? Did you? Who keeps the cloth rough to investigate its lure of an origin? Pushing these fallen few facts seven dozen yards away, Jejun invites the council, the jurors, or even others still impossible in their constitution for wine to ease the work through the years it would take to pay for sin. Between reasons to arrive, why else would living be continuous? Check here or any other box, the judge reminds Jejun, to arrive without a reservation to hold the judge to the work of a body astray. Jiju now waking, the judge arrives unflagging in the morning understood in this drying version of a faith. And to be Jijun, Jijun must speak without the counterfeit luxury of many zeros. That I will be loved. And as long as they both shall live, yet with some sedition and God knows what, struck through itself. But love, it is one hour before the morning ties our tongue to every tercet here. One hour before the loved world arrives by the wild of our tongue, the talking of atoms 90 degrees from the sun. Return now, Jijin, in this palette, stretching a hand to whatever symbol is an exit. Jijin, expel these gallstones. Forgive I, eyes stealth, and true enough, Explain these least remembered things are beyond defense, where no one is born well enough pristine, except in dreams, of course, where language is kept clean. For the girl here still wiry, hiding a meal in the white tree, sure that no one will find it until Jejun, fourth of the ordinary faults the last hour has misplaced. First of the name. Thank you. Uh, um, thanks. It's nice to hear everybody. It's wonderful. Um, and um, thanks everyone for being here, for listening today. I'm going to read from a book called Magnetic Equator. And some of the references in the book are um, from The, the country that my maternal family is from, Guyana, South America. And um, there are also some, some, pardon me, some lines that are sort of plucked from and reassembled from different Caribbean novelists and poets. Billions of slow forest eyes follow me, curved and pointed at their edges. The leaves blink. The slick leaves turn and read me as I pass, a glowing amber figure, an interloper with a strange culture of concrete and wires colonizing my gray matter. 
The dangling vines are letters my language can't decipher. The jungle floor is falling leaves, decomposing maps, fermenting directions, lives steaming as they sink into the earth. His fired fronds in overlapping patterns above the sun-hammered black copper floor, veined glyphs that branch and rebranch into each other, is an inchoate language simmering down into the cosmic crucible, his leaves flattened and sinking into the earth's molten ore without a whisper, is the echo of the canopy's nocturnal chatter, is an infinite archive of carbon-based letterforms, is a gibberish rustle in the underbrush, is the eyelid's crocodile skin, its reptilian grail thinking, is an imprint more ancient than paper, is decomposing into the bitter, gleaming sap of a literature, is a wink in the gloaming of homo sapiens, is an organic desire to continue without hubris, heaving and exhaling a fermenting mist that drifts up between the branches, that settles into moss in the grooves of rippled trunks, that sails up into the solid beams of light rotating down through breaks in the green, up into the insectile parliament in the canopy, and up again, the earth's exhale hangs above rot and ripening alike, the forest's jaw groans.
People never lauded, landed. People arrived, but people. People departed and arrived again. People retreaded, people stole knowing. People plantation, people horizon. People done run from people. People arrived not knowing their patterns. People arrived riven alone in the world. People made their way from time. People hailed from climes. People fanned their spreading. People cleaved unto people. People writhed over under people. People arrived over under people. Years ago, between the peaceful world of plants and the silence of an indifferent earth, 50 black ships swelled within me, and dreams of gold charged the horizon. Quel avenir connaîtrai-je, celui de mes frères et sœurs des esclaves? I was then four years old and saw my world as vulnerable, as a far sail trembling under the gong, and saw, through volcanic courses, myself as a soldier facing the port of mourning. My first act of ingratitude arrived with the men on the coast, a procession of messengers, drums tuned to a different pitch, sharp, swift, and the vessels drawn up at my feet, swollen with nothing, rib for hoarding, for loathing, mourning, molten between myself and eternity, between gold, good, and bad, between the loss or gain of lime, coffee, cashew, between the journey que les Anglais venaient de m'arracher, alors que le navire faisait voile, between soldiers and exhausted, having received 250 coups de fouet sur les jambes, les fesses, in the door, every morning, I became a soldier who could not be kind. Every morning, I rejected my heart of hearts. Every morning, I blazed between my life and eternity. Every morning, the impending departure of the ships swelled within me. Every morning, I stamped my newly shod feet. Brogadum, I beat my heels into the ground. Brogadum. I planted my father's thunder. Brogadon, I received the earth for evolution. Brogadon, from the bottom rung, mon cœur se gonflait de fureur et de révolte. Every morning, flowers flashed in the sun. Le feu glorieux, le feu qui dévore et calcine. Every morning, the British Empire hungered and groaned within me and a sense of despair, a life in my hands, a limp flesh clutched and wrung, a shadow dripped across an ocean, son ombre s'étendit sur moi comme un génie protecteur, a shadow dreaming of small stones in my mother's abdomen, in the hands of a Carib woman, small stones shot from mes fusils du blanc, small stones swelling within the intrigue, small stones whose skins glistened, Small stones pierced with arrows. Small stones of raw commerce. Small stones blinking at the first beam of dawn shot across the curve of the burning earth. Small stone eyes seeing the world as dew. Small stones skidding through surf. 
Small stones scattering into pelicans' wings. Small stones spinning in Afric in Arawak skulls. Small stones percussing chants. Small stones sparking in darkness. Small stones of Aki seeds carried under the tongue to flourish their future against Babylon. Small stones who marooned. Small stones of mountains. Raisin de la colère. Small stone shuttles. Drumstick tips. Ne peuvent pas nous tuer et glissent sur la peau. The captain's toy fleet glissed sur la peau. In the fine sea spray, in the gust of the town day, the years lead to the front door, past de l'aube et l'aube sieste à l'ombre des manguiers, toward a brave morning on its way. just heard uh, from a November 15th Queen's University event called Who Needs a Poem? Uh, the first half of the event, which were uh, readings uh, by uh, Kanisha Lubrin. Well, let's do it in the order that they were. An introduction, uh, it was introduced uh, by Kanisha Lubrin, who was the uh, Queen's fall term writer in residence here at Queen's University. And the readings uh, that followed in this order then, uh, Robin, uh, Robin Richardson, Leslie Bellow, uh, Kanisha herself with her reading, and then Kai uh, Kello. Uh, you are listening to Finding a Voice. I don't want to interrupt here too much. There's another half, uh, which uh, was uh, full of discussion and Q&A. And so with those same people... I am them, those same poets, I should say. I'm going to uh, just let you know that you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name is Bruce here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. Both hours of this show will be saved to my blog space for it at Finding a Voice on CFRCFM.wordpress.com. As soon as I get home, tell you what, with that, let's just go ahead. Uh, welcome to almost the second hour. I'm going to go ahead and just start this second portion now so as not to interrupt too much. Here we go. Well, all right. I think we can all leave now. <laughs> <laughs> as promised, uh, we will, I will take us into the conversation that will happen now, and you will see that this will be a kind of dinner table conversation, but without the food. We can imagine an exuberant feast uh, or fireplace, whatever looks the moment for you. Um, I will start us off with a more general question, and then we are going to engage each other um, along, along the theme of this poem and um, whatever other things that move us um, in this instance. And we will also maybe talk a little bit about the poem that we read today as well. Um, so, you know, this, this question uh, of who needs a poem um, is, is a, a kind of obsession for me because I'm always thinking of not just the work of genre, um, but any kind of artistic pursuit which 
artists risk entire lives upon. It's a thing you commit to with an almost completely detached from <laughs> from the molds that we tend to think of as reality, right? Because if we were to be practical about those things, we probably wouldn't be writing poems, right? We might be engineers, we might be lawyers and doctors, etc. Um, but I think we're doing a similar kind of work in a different kind of register. Uh, so I'm always very interested in this idea um, of why poets arrive at all. Yeah. Um, and you know, just thinking of uh, you know something that you read, uh, and what I brought up from Auden earlier, that poetry makes nothing happen, and I just think it's just a, a terrible disservice to Auden that this phrase is called up you know time and time again to kind of disavow the importance of poetry. But really, the man was mourning, right? And we, it's okay. <laughs> we should we should mourn, all of us. Um, and so, something that came up in one of your poems, uh, the, the line, there is nothing besides of this. Um, and uh, Leslie, the long-armed trees that know our names. You know, there's a particular kind of fecundity in that knowing that I think escapes a certain kind of logic. Um, okay, the kind of melding that you were doing with sound. It's extremely interesting because some people might argue that poetry is sound anyway, right? And so um, this sort of layering of, of sound that is outside the poem with the sound in the poem, um, all of that seems to be a certain insistence on something essential in, in poetry that we tend to go after and whatever it is that we bring to that, right? And so, the question is, if you haven't figured it out yet, is in your various positions, or the positionality that you have uh, with poetry, uh, who needs a poem? What's that for you? You know, what do you think you need? I think you're being looked at. <laughs> <laughs> That's my bias. <laughs> so anybody can jump in at me. Well, I, I'm totally interested in this Auden quote, which, which I might have heard in passing, but I've never thought of it until I, I hear you talking about it. And I'm, I'm thinking about, well, like, I think it's, it's so brilliant because like, the line, poetry makes nothing happen, in and of itself has that function that poetry does, which is it holds this potentially paradoxical sort of statement in it. We can see it as poetry makes nothing happen in the way plain speech you would sort of interpret nothing happens. It's, it's a negative attribute, or nothing is actively happening. We're bringing nothing into the fold. And maybe nothingness in and of itself is something very, very important. Um, I think very important. <laughs> so when I think about who needs a poem, I think one of, the, one of the painful things about this world for me is that poetry isn't a language that, that a lot of people come to and that they don't. And, and I, I wonder if some of that is the way it's taught. Um, as though poetry is this riddle to be unlocked and then figured out, and like, what did that mean? And what did it stand for? And okay, you got it, now move on. Instead of this place to sit and maybe access for a while nothing, or so much, or so much paradox, or so much bewilderment that you end up in this state beyond the things. And I think that state is really important. And instead of, you know, God, it just pains me that instead of learning poetry as this thing you can 
where you can sort of sit in ambiguity and have an experience and engage with it continuously. I think if we were teaching it that way, everyone would realize that they need a poem. <laughs> but instead, we're taught sort of poetry is this, this clever little thing created by some intelligent person that we don't, we can't have access to. And so can you figure it out? And can you crack the code? And then if you did, you're done with it. And maybe you've learned a lesson here or there. But the truth is, like I think for me, the great poetry is in a state of uncertainty. And maybe to me, that nothingness is that uncertainty. We can't, I'm not going to, it's not a, a prescription. I can't give you something with this poem that you can tangibly accept as reality. Because that, at least for me, that's where poetry is valuable, is in the place where you really understand that you don't know anything. That, like, and so it's, it's crucial, and it's sad that it's not um, a better known language. I'll end there if you want to. Hey, I'm Jane language that I see as being indigenous literature, indigenous poetry. And to me, the um, poetry today, it just kind of, um, it, it, I look at it like the opposition of what has been silenced, in a way. Um, there were, our poems weren't supposed to exist. They should not have existed right now. Us as a, as, as a, as a nation shouldn't have existed. This isn't just for indigenous people. That's the way I'm seeing it for indigenous people. There should not, we should not have poems here in 2019. We should have our language within our poetry in 2019. We should have had this. So uh, there were, there's no, um, I mean, I remember reading what um, Armand Garnett Rupo, he, he teaches here, but I remember reading there was sort of in 1973, there became something that has been known as like an indigenous renaissance. I mean, growing up, I've always, you know, we've read all the English literature courses, but I, it wasn't until in the mid 90s that I actually read a poem Never mind, never mind by an indigenous, indigenous male, or Ojibwe male, or Cree male, but by an indigenous female poet. I, I, to me, it didn't exist, even though th there were aspects towards that. So to me, what, the fact that there is no, that poems, like poems to me, is, a, is an act of, um, of de-silencing what has been hidden underground for centuries. I mean, I remember, and I think, I, I don't know if I was telling you this, but, um, I remember a lot of um, people, when it came to oral stories, they used to hide under, I think I mentioned this at lunch, they would hide underneath tablecloths in their kitchen table so they weren't seen from the outside. And when my grandmother spoke Ojibwe, I, I'm, I'm not a fluent Ojibwe speaker, I'm a word-by-word -word language learner because my dad was in residential school and he wasn't too ashamed to speak Ojibwe to him, it was a language of shame. He spoke German, he spoke Dutch, and he spoke French, and he spoke English. As he was in the Canadian Army, he ran away to the States to escape coming back to the reserve, it was a shameful place to him. And so he was too ashamed to learn his language. He, he was too ashamed to to, um, to date a woman who, who didn't have veins so, uh, skin so white that the veins were so blue and up all pulsating. He was very, and it took him um, until his fourth century to realize that that is even a problem. So when my grandmother spoke Ojibwe, that she would close the front door and she'd close the windows and the curtains and she was blazing hot in there and she'd speak it in, in a whisper silently to whoever was in the room. And then when she was thought that her point had come across, she'd reopen the windows and the doors and let the air come through. So to me, it's, um, it, it's a revolutionary um, way of, it's a revolutionary narrative um, that that, that was attempted to be eliminated as along with our own internal beings as human beings. The words, they attacked our words. Our words were one of the first things that were attacked besides our, our space and our land and our sense of like womanhood, you know, sexuality and bodies. 
It was our language that was brutally attacked, brutally assaulted, brutally, um, it was not only assimilated, it was, um, the attempt was towards a, a complete annihilation. They didn't want to assimilate our language. That means that our language could still exist. They wanted a complete annihilation of our language. And so the fact that that hasn't happened to me, it, I, I think in poetry it's extremely powerful because um, each word um, in, um, say, a Ojibwe language or Haudenosaunee language or Cree language, it's an entire story inside of that word. It's not just one word. It's not a direct translation. It's an entire history that exists there. So to me, it's um, an act of sort of being able to survive through um, poetry. And I, I find that very powerful. Yeah, I would, I would agree a lot with what Leslie said. As a poetry is something that enables and, and assists in survival, but um, uh, I also and also um, and I guess brings stories and languages to light that might have been um, suppressed or looked upon um, as things that one ought to be ashamed of. Um, I also see poetry as a collaborative force because it allows you to engage in all kinds of activities that with others. So in the sense of just a poetry reading, I mean, a reading is sort of collaborative. We need, if a person is reading, we need someone listening. We need to catch a vibration from someone and work together to make the reading come to fruition. Um, and then in my own practice, it's been very um, valuable as a tool for collaboration. Um, so not only creating sound, but you're collaborating with the words that are written on the page and with the people in the audience, but you might be collaborating with um, other artists, musicians, um, visual artists, or other writers. And um, I would say more broadly speaking, in order to create a healthy um, artistic community, uh, it's important that poets do cooperate and collaborate with one another. And I do see um, events like this, reading together, uh, being informed by one another's work as something that poetry enables. Um, and again, it, it, it becomes a force for collaboration, something that brings people together, enables us to share thought, cooperate, think together about the world of religion and the experiences we have, and um, think toward, um, think about our histories and how they intersect and why they intersect in this place at this time and how we interact with one another and what we can do to forge toward a um, different world that's, that's perhaps more in line with what we would imagine for ourselves. Um, so I do say that poetry, think that poetry um, can move things, can make things happen in the world, yes. I have a quick thought about poetry, sure. this is a little one. Um, thinking about distinguishing poetry from other art forms is one thing that always crossed my mind, which is that it's the only one that can't be destroyed. Like, really, you can memorize a poem and hold it in your mind and pass that down through generations. And maybe a fairy tale to the same extent, and I don't think there's any other art form that can be kept like that. There's something special about that, especially as we face a potential apocalypse in our minds. This is, you can, you can keep a poem forever, and your family can keep it forever the way they can't a painting or a piece of music or a novel. And there's something kind of powerful about that too. I think it's designed to be immortal in that way. Potential for immortality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say, like, you know, it's something, it's designed that way. 
You can keep it. In a way that's different. What's that? In a way that's different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of early poetry were songs. Yeah. So that's sort of the musicality of poetry makes it particularly memorizable. Memorizable, yeah. of course. And it also gives us something manageable. Even as as capacious as that thing might be, because we're speaking um, in the multi-malice of something that does so many different things at once. Yeah, but it, it offers it to us in these small packages, or, or in relation, but the packages are a lot smaller than, say, a novel. I mean, I wouldn't try to, memor to memorize Moby Dick or like, <laughs> Hamlet. <laughs> I mean, and, and Hamlet so was a more memorizable, again, because it's got the Right? But most poems that we, that we encounter today are not really written in the epic form, so we don't have to stick with them for tens and hundreds of pages. Um, and so that just makes me think about how we make ourselves or how we become through literature. Because I, I really do think that literature has that particular capacity. And, and that is not to say it's inviolable, right? We can, we can become horrible things, of course, also through literature, you know? And, and so um, <laughs> the making of the self in literature, I think, is just is something that is particularly profound and, and asks for um, a kind of opening up of the materials of, of relation, how we relate not just to one another, but to the world beyond us, to the non-human, to the whatever it is. Um, and so in thinking of those small units that we hope can carry something of the self, um, and also invite others into the capaciousness of, of that making, um, we will just you know, pose some questions to one another. Uh, and do you want to go first? Pose your question? Yeah, pose your question. Um, and then we, we will just jump in with our various um, so I had a question for um, Robin about language and speech. Um, we, should, we, should, we read some of some one another's work uh, before attending today, and we shared online some questions. Um, so uh, that's why the question is here. So the question was, um, in one of your poems, which the one I read was called The Best We Can Give, um, there are several terms of mine that uh, I said that I can hear clearly because they seem to be extracted from speech from the language of our daily lives. But the language of the poem doesn't dwell exclusively in that register. At times it, it moves into a more elevated um, mode and at times it becomes more sonorous. Um, so how important is speech, its rhythms and its familiarity to your approach to the poem? And how do you conceive of this movement between linguistic registers within it? Mm -hmm, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry for not writing the poem that I remember to, but I think I think my my work might work. I mean, it's it's easy enough to respond to it based on what I read. Um, I am a big believer in accessibility of language. So, like you said, it's extracted from daily speech. I want 
I, I don't, again, I talk about, I, I regret that people can't access the language of poetry. It's important for me to write the kinds of poems that are accessible to people who haven't been studying poetry and haven't been in academia and might feel intimidated by it. So I hope that I'm achieving that. It was hard to know because sometimes I might be entering naturally a higher register just because my vocabulary goes there or my mind goes there and I try to make sure there's always kind of an in uh, to it. So that, uh, I combine, I try to combine very, very day-to-day -day language for the most part um, with like how important it sound is so important. Like I'm always trying to create a very, very specific sonic experience for the reader that's gonna help them experience whatever the, the tempo of the actual contents of the poem is. So sound, so sound has to be a part of um, the experience, the pacing that I'm forcing you to go into, the kinds of, and, and like obviously you do this too with your work, um, everyone does. That's, I mean, that's poetry, but, um, so making sure I'm almost tricking the reader into having a certain emotional experience based on based on the sounds of the letters and the words that I'm using to construct what's happening and the tempo. Um, and if it moves into, and I, and I almost, like I'm always thinking about the mind of the reader and like the potential scope of who might be reading. So if I, when I do move into a higher register or something that might be, and it gets very, and it gets very complex, I know, um, there's no punctuation in my new work. It's it's syntactically complex, but if you read it slowly enough and you engage with it, it will make sense. So part of it is to say, you don't have to enter it knowing how to read it, but you can teach yourself how to read it. I demand you to, to work that hard, though. So I want it to be able, anyone can do it, but they have to put the effort in, and they have to slow down, and they have to read outside of um, the way they would normally approach so the, I, I like the idea of changing your brain as, as they're going. Can I just ask a question back to you? And we'll kind of, kind of, did, you do, did you have a structure? Just, okay. Yeah, um, well actually for both of you, I was thinking about the relationship, or as you're writing, how much is led by, I think for you and Anita, but this the whole thing. What's the ratio of being led by image versus sound as you're writing? Um, the image has to be pretty important. The language is period is, is important. Whether it's a visual language, language referring to visual things, or whether the words are chosen for their sonic um, properties um, and how they fit into the established sonic structure of the poem as it's developing. Um, I always think of poetry as a, pe as a place that people can go. It's where you go to find the most um, just fly language. <laughs> That's where language is just, it's just amazing. That's where language is hip. That's where it's interesting. That's where it, um, it's, it's coming together in combinations that are of words and, and ideas and images and so forth that are unexpected, and it should be. Um, at least when I'm sitting down to write sort of electric. Um, and so I would say that my approach is more one of, 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 of practicality and that whatever creates that effect is what I would gravitate to first. Um, but it's also, as you're writing, as a poem develops, the poem kind of acquires its own um, identity and it starts to make its own demands upon you. And you have to listen to those demands and respond to them appropriately. Um, so you wind up in sort of in conversation with the poem, and you 
in a way, you 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 um, you you do its bidding, um, whether it requires something sonorous or something visual, um, what have you. So uh, I know that that's not as direct an, an answer. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, there's certainly something to to poetic language though, that I would say demands a very high level of trust in the reader because every poem is an act of profound listening. Uh, even as a writer, you're constantly listening to very deep wells of things happening, right? And so to attend to that profundity, even on the level of play, mm -hmm. you know, as you're doing this now, when you got to the part where it sounded almost like a DJ took a, yeah. you know, took to the turntables and just like, oh. right? I don't know what I just did. <laughs> That requires profound, deep listening, you know? Um, and so for me, I think I always take the position that the reader's smarter than I am, right? And that the poem is smarter than I am, you know? And so to allow, and to attend to the poem, as you say, to attend to the demands that the poem, the poem makes of you, you know, even as the so-called author, you take all the glory, <laughs> and, and you take all of the criticism when, whatever, <laughs> if, if, if that, if that, bond and that contract breaks somehow, which is fine, because I actually, um, I believe in failure as a thing in poetry, you know, so, but how to attend to the, to the failure of language and to attend to the failure of how much we can know and the things we won't know, given where we are, how we are, and why we are. Um, and so the, the image is there nonetheless. So I think the, the, whether the sound carries something of the imagistic um, is, is in itself a kind of remarkable feature of the miracle of language, you know? So whatever sound it is, I think that language is always there. And sound, obviously, it's the, it's the obvious thing that's there because it's the air that carries, you know? I think poetry never really left the voice. We're just trying to, do on the page what it does, what it does here in the focus. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I find that um, something so like poems, because I've read that poem before, but hearing it um, spoken and it, it spoken aloud, it, 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 it meant something entirely different to me. You know, the first time I read it, I, I understood it was beautiful, but then once, like, the images have always been there, they, they are, exist there, but this, they put the, you put the sonic. Um, effects in, in your own voice and it, it, it brings a sense of urgency to the poem in a sense that it brings it to a, like, almost a historical reality or present mixed with present day um, immediacy you know all blended together in such a powerful way that almost makes it seem like upon reading two different poems all together you know so, so that effect I mean is beautiful so it's an image and has such a deep relationship with the sound you know in some poems that sometimes they, they appear different upon just simply reading them and interpreting them through the written form as opposed to an, an oral um, spoken word piece. So I know I noticed that it was a completely different understanding of the poem when you read it. Yeah. yeah. So actually, some of the most probably profound, uh, you know, artistic experiences I've had are just listening to good poets uh, read um, poets who are really who who either just are very good readers or poets who, um, like all of you, um, or poets who are um, really use their voice in an interesting way. Um, 
and just just voice and language alone, I think, are um, extremely. Uh, they're, they're just they're very moving, and they can be. You, you can have sort of. A, uh, you can be moved physically, emotionally, spiritually, just by listening to that. And I think that that is uh, on a bit of a, a tangent. Um, that that's sort of the 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 aim or the goal of, of a lot of oral poetry, especially the oral poetry traditions that I sort of situate myself as an inheritor of. Um, the uh, oral traditions from the Caribbean, from African America, um, where voice, presence, and resonance are important things. Like you, we have to feel each other, right? And so when you express a poem, you are, um, you're putting your vibration, your, um, your, say, I don't want to sound frivolous, but your your spiritual energy and your force and your power into um, the space with other people, and to express a poem is about kind of realizing a kind of presence in your presence, what it feels like, what it sounds like um, in the room uh, with other people. Um, but like that's the, that's the tradition that I come from. That's where. I'm, it's a, it's a great dual nature, too, of poetry. Like, I'm thinking, again, of making nothing happen in two meanings and, and how, how much we love to play with multiple meanings within our poems. But a poem has that double functionality, the, the very individual experience of opening a book and hearing the words in your own head and taking it in your own time and having this intimate, solitary conversation with, with, the, with the book and then hearing the poet. Like, again, and, and the experience of hearing you all be is completely different than reading your work on the page infinitely more powerful and it, and it informs them. and then you go back and you never read the poems the same. So then there's three levels, right? There's you engaging with the text alone, you hearing the poet, and then you reading the work now with the poet's voice in your head. Like I remember trying to understand Sean Berryman when I was a grad student and then hearing John Berryman read and be like, I know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> and it never would have happened to hang on. And sometimes you regret hearing the poem. <laughs> <laughs> And it's not one of the questions, I, I, I've said four different questions, but um, one thing I just, um, this is just a new question that's not on here actually, because when I, you were reading your second, um, your long poem, your five, um, five volume poem, um, there was just so much images of water throughout the poem, and I just wondered, and it, it was just seemed to be related to you so personally, and um, even in your first poem, you said, how fisherman pulled you out of the water? It just seems such a recurring thing. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering how that works, the idea of the water through your work. Yeah, cool, that's a big question. It's funny, because I, 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 I try, I'll, I'll talk about my process first, because I can't, I can't answer questions about how intentional I am about something because I, my process is to, I believe that my intellectual brain is not nearly as good and hasn't picked up as much nuance as my kind of unconscious brain has. So a lot of this comes out without intention and then I, and then I figure it out after it's on the page and I find for me that process works really well. So I, I'm gonna reverse engineer and think about what, <laughs> what it is about water. Um, first of all, the like the, you know, the, the true narrative of this experience, the whole thing came from, um, it started with me running, and I think about this often because it was really dangerous, running into the ocean at like one o'clock in the morning um, in the dark and just like going out as far as I could and, and swimming really, again, ecstatically. 
under the moon, but this, this ocean was just filled with stingray and like jellyfish. And I was, I'm amazed that I'm alive because I did that for like two hours. Um, but yeah, I know, <laughs> it's got so much energy. Um, but there's this reoccurring image in my dreams as well of, of being in rooms that suddenly sort of fill up with water and having this feeling like I can't, I shouldn't be able to breathe, but I can breathe and not understanding that. So I, and also feeling like I should be at peace with the fact that it's fine anyways, but I think it shouldn't be fine. So there's something about water that is terrifying, but fine. And I think that that is an underlying theme in this book and for myself in general. There's something, it's like, this is terrible and we're all gonna die and that's fine. <laughs> Try not to get too attached. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can I, can I pose a question to Kenesia and Leslie? Okay. Um, I guess I, I just I was originally just a question for Leslie, but it was about um, writing with um, more than one language, right? And how the the two languages inform one another. If you could talk a little bit about that. Um, and then I noticed that you also had some French Creole in there. Um, yeah. And the name Jeugène. Um If both of you could talk about that, about how, I guess, um, how does one language influence or inform the other? And how do they work together? Um, or how do they you know, refuse to cooperate within the poem? So what, what, is, what is that experience like of working with two languages? Well, initially I only wrote in, in English because I wasn't, um, I mean, this is going back to, you know, the ladies. I, I wasn't comfortable because I, I wasn't, um, I didn't know the, I didn't, there was, I didn't know the territorial um, specific words for, for, for these people, and I was too afraid at that point to go and ask. I didn't know that that, that was a thing. But, you know, I could actually indulge that, and, and I always worried about, okay, I'm going to put the audience in a position where they don't understand what I'm saying. And I felt, you know, like, like almost like a poetic guilt about making people, forcing people to, oh, what does this word mean? You know what I mean? And chasing after that word. But then I stopped thinking that I, I shouldn't ever feel that way, that there should be, shouldn't be any guilt there. I'm, I'm writing in a colonized language to begin with. And I, and I don't feel guilt about that. So maybe I had to kind of revert the feelings of guilt. And if, if I did, was a fluent speaker in Ojibwe, I, I could believe I'd write an entire poem in an Anishinaabeg way because I think it would mean something entirely different than when I wrote in English. But the relationship to me, and then I started um, you know, speaking to elders on my reserve, um, specifically Barbara Nolan. She's, she's a, one of the most only fluent speakers on my reserve from, that writes and she knows the exact stories from, the, uh, land-based stories from Garden River. And um, so I started speaking with her, and she said, you, you know, word by word, it's okay to write like that, it's okay. So I started by just a general like in insertion into my work to see how they operated to each other. But upon doing that, I understood that there was a, a form of relationship that was happening there, because it made, um, it, for, it made my poems just not be my poems anymore, it made them, my ancestors step inside of, of my own work, and there was a different sense of power there because there was a history that suddenly existed there that didn't exist before. And I somehow felt their voices and, and understood like um, a different, I don't know how to explain, a pulse, pulsation of power that, you know, and I wanted to give respect to um, the language that they carried for, for so many, so many years since the beginning of Turtle Island. And I wanted to do that um, in accordance to what I began to write based on my own 
you know, knowledge that's only a, a few centuries, not a few centuries, good God, a few centuries old, but, and so it just, it was, um, it's a relationship to me that it, it empowers my poem because it makes me remember um, a grandmothers and all, every woman or, or man or a person that stood behind me that, that even had a story to tell, and I feel like I'm, I'm part of that, and I'm part of um, the original stories that were began here. You know, from all of my grandmothers and grandmothers. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in the, there's obviously English and Creole, French Creole, in, in Blue Hypothesis, but in this, in the Descartes, um, I use six languages. Um, I'm not going to tell you what they are because I want you to read them on it. Um, but I think polyvocality um, is one of the things that we evolve through. You know, it's listening to the world. It is just a feast for the ears. Now, obviously, there's folks who can't hear, right? Um, and what they say is other senses become way more heightened. But for a hearing person, such as myself, I really believe in the power of polyvocality. Really, it takes us away from a certain destructive kind of absolutism, I think. And if we become entrenched in any one particular thing all the time, not only do we cheat ourselves of a certain experience of the world that I think is way more valuable, um, we also fail in that capacity that we like to boast about what it is to be human, that we're the most advanced and intellectual and this and that and the other things. We get everything, <laughs> you know? Um, and I just think that languages open up the world for us in ways that is really akin to the ideal that we continually strive for, right? And I'm, I'm not sure that we are, uh, any of us will reach that place in our lifetimes. Maybe that's one dream that we can have, you know, 250 years into the future um, or more than that. But I am, but when it comes to language, I always say that if ever there was to be a superpower bestowed upon me, it would be that I speak every language on the planet. Mm-hmm. All of them. I want all of it. You know, I think that's the superpower. Because what good is super strength or flying or invisibility if you can't communicate? You know what I mean? Everybody's going to have to call me up and be like, I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> Can you listen in? Um, <laughs> but I think for me, in this book, thematically, what I'm looking at is this idea of dysgraphia, and I'm not using it in a literal sense, right? Dysgraphia means to, to miswrite, right? Or to, to write something that's not really what you mean. But you have no control over how it comes out. Right? And for me, that is really interesting, thinking of a poet who miswrites. Um, and I borrow this term from Christina Sharp's In the Wake on blackness of being, where she talked about um, 
existing in the wake of the transatlantic slavery uh, trade in a state of dysgraphia. Uh, and for me, I'm engaging with this along the idea of being illegible in the places that you live and that you make a life. Did you, did you accidentally say the transatlantic slave raid? <laughs> it was a raid too. <laughs> you know, and so that that putting those languages together for me it, it's practicing a kind of translation, but not really. You know, there's the sense that translation is more an act of recreation than it is simply moving a meaning from one language to another, as if you can do that. You know, some things just don't translate. That's you know, like in Creole, there are certain words that we don't have in English and words we don't have in Creole that exist in English. So it just gives me a much more dynamic tool set um, to work with and to really explore the capacity of language um, to expand the possibilities of the world for us. You know, I just I recently translated a poem by Stéphane Martelly, who's a Haitian poet in Montreal. And um, there's this one expression she uses in the poem, it's il, and it's spelled I-L-L-E-S. So, an il in French, in il is an island. I, accent circonflexe, L, E, right? And il is he, I-L. L, E-L-L-E, is her. So it's this incredible, um, what she wrote is I-L-L-E-S. And what it would mean is islands, but it also contains both masculine and feminine in it. And it says islands. There is no way to translate that. Um, and so she's referring to others. And so the only way that I could translate it was they, which is a horrible moment. <laughs> but yeah, there's some things that, that, that you just that can't be translated. I wonder if in the vein of what you, you've all done, but you could just keep that word in there <laughs> in your translation. Yeah, you can. You can. Yeah. Yeah. Is that so true? I can want to do that. Yeah. 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 I like to get my students to work on translation exercises, even if they don't know the language of the original form. Mm -hmm. So I say if you know someone or you have a friend or a relative or who speaks a certain language, engage them somehow. Mm -hmm. And then let's see what the translation produces. It's always really interesting that their method is just as amazingly interesting as the product that they end up with. And sometimes the translation has almost nothing to do with the original, but it's just such a way of having a conversation within poetry, I think. Yeah, that that's, that's one of the interesting advantages or, or properties of living there as a writer. Is it uh, usually what it seems like is that in other parts of Canada, when you if you if you find yourself in translation, you a poet usually or fiction writer has to be quite successful to wind up at a point where they get translated. Whereas in Quebec, it seems to be much more just a matter of course, mm -hmm. right? You publish a book, and a few years later, it's translated, mm -hmm. or as it's coming out, it's being pitched for translation, because uh, and both for French work and work in English as well. And so it's that that kind of movement between languages is, is is that was my that's what kind of informed my interest in it is because that's that's sort of very much part of the the cultural and literary landscape in Montreal and Quebec. Yeah, I'm always reading poetry and translation. I just think it's just phenomenal the way you get to see the world and be in the world and you're offered so many ways of seeing that otherwise you just would not have access to. You know. The next best thing to speaking every language is to read in translations. 
I'm gonna throw up because this is because I'm I'm just so aware of my of like not being a part of this conversation. And it's interesting to put. I guess I'll like I'll share another perspective, which is I it's, that sounds brilliant, and I'm so aware of my own. I guess this is a conversation with disability, but I you only speak English. I only speak English, um, and I didn't read or write English. Oh my gosh, until I was 13. Um, so like the fear of other languages, just to think like it's I'm still getting my footing with English to a to like a huge degree and have this almost Pavlovian response to the idea of trying to learn new words. That is so. I mean, not to say it would put me off. Of, no, it puts me off of it. I want to. Like I respect so much your inquiry into this and the passion for it and how important it is. And then just thinking about what it means when your brain is just. Uh, like those neurons are not necessarily connecting certain languages, such a challenge for me, which is part of why I love poetry so much, because this is how I figure out English <laughs> to begin with. So just throwing that in there, just being, I feel like the kind of blue collar representation for that. Uh, yeah. Or, or could it also maybe be that you might have a much easier time with another language than, than English? Because English is like the anxiety. Well, it's not an English thing, it's an auditory. So dyslexia mm -hmm. is actually not, it's, um, it's a symbolic processing issue. So the neurons aren't aren't connecting, saying like, uh, so love, L-O-V-E, isn't organizing in my brain in a way that it, it turns into something that it's supposed to represent. So I don't think it's English specific. I think it's anything that has that isn't literally what it is. Because I, I mean, I've, I've talked to a few people before, I mean, and it's not just my words. So I'm, I'm not sure if you guys um, encountered that again. But, but I mean, even when you just said, you know, if there's that anxiety about not understanding, you know, what does that word mean? Because mm -hmm. you know, but I've heard people say, well, why, you know, there's no glossary there because I don't do the glossary or translations. I'm not sure if, if both either of you do, but there's almost a uh, sense of anger, a literary anger there that you know, and you don't have the right to write this without the explanation of exactly specifically what it means. I don't know if that's part of the anxiety you're, you're talking about. No, the anxiety about. For, for me to attempt to do it. I, I like, and I think about your relationship to the reader and asking them to vote, because it's, it's a beautiful experience to read your poems and, and have this sound experience first. And I wouldn't be upset for, making, for someone making me uncomfortable, because that's life, right? Like, yeah. you're making me uncomfortable. But the experience of, of reading, not knowing what it is, and then looking it up, and then having, again, so that we talked about the layer of like reading the poem yourself, then having it read to you, then the, you have a whole other layer, because now there's the, the pre-understanding and post-understanding of the definition of the word, so it's great. Yeah, but I mean, did, did you guys ever come across that where there was a confusion where people just want that need to specify precisely what these words might mean as as a, as a reader or the audience? Um, I was once in, in Banff, and Danny Lafarriere was there, and we were reading, and he he decided to read. Um, Basically, he said that I'm going to read to you in French um, because we need to hear the presence of the French language in this part of the country. So he did have his reading in French. And it was interesting because there were a lot of people who were outside of that reading or just on the other side of it. Um, but I wanted to say something to Robbins. That's why I asked you the question about the different registers of language in the poem because I think even any single language is also multiple. Like it contains multiple different types of language mm -hmm. and different kind of constructions, different ways of making meaning, different ways of, of creating emphasis, different ways of articulating uh, varied cultural and class experiences. So even when you're 
putting together a poem, you're kind of maybe translating some of those different registers into the world of the poem. Did anyone, did anyone hear the last Griffin Poetry Prize reading? Mm -hmm. Kim Hai-sung, so she was there with her translator, and she's um, South Korean, and she did this performance of one of the poems that I had no idea what she was saying, but I was, I was bawling my eyes out. Yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> so meaning isn't always the first, isn't always the first uh, yeah. step in poem. Multi-balance of poetry. Yeah, people can, I think there's room for the full range of reactions. Right. It's fine if they're upset, it's fine. That's great. Yeah. They say, give me the meaning right here. I don't want to go to the dictionary. It's, I mean, all of that is yeah. in it. Um, so I, mean, I kind of expect the full range of things. But really, I went for that reading. For I, mean, I just wanted to hear the Korean. I was. Yeah. I only wanted to hear the Korean. I went. <laughs> I like I started, I started speaking English. I could not help but want to stay in, in the Korean because it was mm -hmm. just, there was something really, really powerful about that. She was really powerful. Well, we have uh, a couple minutes. You can ask your own early questions if you have any, or even if they're super cool. <laughs> I have a burning, uh, burning question. Um, so I watched a film recently called uh, Mother's Brooklyn. It was starring Edward Norton who had this, uh, this, what do you call an affliction, where where things would get stuck in his brain, and I feel like that is something naturally uh, uh, happens with poets. Um, you know, the, the, the words get stuck in there, and they turn, and they move around, and they should change, 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 change more and stuff. And I was wondering if any of you had an experience like that, or if all of you have an experience like that all the time, like, <laughs> what is it like? Is it like, uh, when he says it like glass in the brain, or is it like, um, how does the word movement change a single word or multiple words or whatever you want to give me? Yeah. I'm so curious what everyone does. Well, I know that when I was reading that corner had thoughts, just that word, um, like I was thinking about the word shh, you know, and then like, it, like at first it was squashed because, you know, um, and then from that, like I just thought about the word squaw and, the, you know, the meaning of it, but then just, and I, I kept wanting to find more words, but then it, would, it, it had to stop there because there was a scene that was building that was too emotionally intense during that time because it involves a rape, it's, it, it's about rape, about, that's like the rape of, of our women. But still, it started on just that one word about literally being squashed under a body. And then the word like hush and shh and squaw, you know, coming out of that one idea of being physically squashed or, or being unable to breathe, you know. So I mean, but it is, it's a, um, there's so many words that you, you pull out of that. But I mean, I, I wanted there to be more, but there just wasn't, that was enough, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I used to, sometimes words or phrases get stuck in the brain. I used to do these um, sound poems that would involve a lot of spelling, like spelling. So you spell out a phrase, do you read me, or um, a word, or something like that. And you kind of, like, there's sound poet Paul Duffin in Toronto, he has this one record uh, where he has all of these different poems where it's like one letter, there's M's and N's and O's, and so you, if you listen to M, you'll hear like and he will explode and exhaust the sound of an M and an N and an O. And um, I, I just found that to be so obsessive 
um, and uh, futile, but interesting, um, an incredible pursuit. And so um, sometimes words or parts of words will definitely get, get um, lodged there and you want to play them over and, and turn them over and explore their various sonorities. Um, absolutely, yeah, it, it can become something that is, is, is uh, it sticks in the brain. Yeah, it's funny for me. I don't. I don't think I can say yes to that. Um, maybe sometimes, but my process is so. The, the poem, the words, the relationship that I have to the choice of words in the poem is more like a, this is an unromantic way to say it, but it's like a crossword with uh, so many requirements. So I come across something, and then like, okay, this needs to be. Um, you know, three syllables, and it needs to really resonate S um, with a hint of O, and needs to be low, and also needs to be of, it needs to be a noun uh, that fits in with this setting, but also evokes this particular existential idea. So there's like 18 different <laughs> things that this word has to fulfill, and, 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 and sometimes, sometimes, I, like I'll write for four hours in the morning, and sometimes it'll be like one hour on a word. So I don't have the word first, but I have a lot of requirements for it. And eventually it is, like it will come through. But you see the amount of struggle with English. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't really claim that experience either. Uh, but I know I'm always listening for something. But I don't think, not, not that, no. I feel I've decided never to translate poetry again, and just fiction, because poetry is a lot more complicated to translate. But uh, so, but I do feel uh, a sense that I lack some legitimacy, and even though I'm bilingual, in, in writing in French. Um, second languages, there's always a point of weakness there, you know, and certain things, but even speaking French, uh, there are always certain moments of hesitation. And then when you're writing, those moments become amplified because they're set down there on the page. So I can definitely understand how you feel writing in second language. Well, I just, uh, you know, for me, it's just, um, I, I feel like, um, I know English is my first language, but I feel like this is a, a language that I'm also carrying that I just haven't been able to, to speak or to write about. So I mean, it comes with like a feeling of sadness almost that, that I, I have to work so hard to find something that, that I feel has, should have been, you know what I mean? That has, has, hasn't been. So to me, it's, it's, it's a, each time I do it, I just feel like it's not, I, I could make, it would be so much more power, it feels more powerful to me than English, you know? And um, so I just like to kind of balance 
with that idea, thank goodness I don't know how to, or else I'd probably just be, you know, but each word, even just the one word, I, I feel like it creates some uh, sense of power and, uh, and like a deeper sense of connection to what what I have, should have known in the past, you know, or what is carried with my ancestors. Um, I, I, can I just comment on, sure. on this, this comment? So I think when sometimes when we're speaking a language that's not our mother tongue or writing in it, we put this idea on ourselves that it should sound like a native speaker or a native writer. But I think if you can let that slide, you see what poetry comes out, and it's amazing because a native speaker or a native writer wouldn't structure the sentence, the spoken sentence, or the written phrase that way. So I think that's something that I found as a beauty um, in my friends when they speak English, and when I'm speaking French, I just let it go. As long as someone can understand what I'm saying, maybe they find that in me, but. I think that's probably something that is special in how you write, but you may not even see it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I speak three languages, um, and I can get by in Spanish and Italian as a listener, and I can respond maybe minimally, choppily, um, but of course I can respond in English. So you speak to me in Italian or Spanish, like I understand what you say. Uh, and then I speak French, English, Creole. French field. Um, I think for the poet, um, the, the task is not merely to symbolize, but to mean. Like you can tell sometimes when you're in a poem that is polyvocal, that's using multiple languages, whether it's just there as a symbol or to signify something, or whether it's actually mean, there's something that it means. And it's not just language, it's also dialect, you know? Um, for, like, for example, Tongo Eisen Martin's Heaven's All Goodbyes uses a lot of African-American uh, dialects in it, but that the dialectical is not there merely to signify. It's like literally part of the meaning that is formed in the poem, and that's like the poem would not exist without it. So I think that is the, for me, if there's a sense of legitimacy that I can hold on to, it's that. Just, you just have to make sure, as a poet, that those languages, those sounds, you know, all of that is, is meaning and not merely symbol. Um, I think that, you know, this is, this is good, you know, for, for an afternoon. just heard uh, over the course of the last two hours with just a minor interruption about well essentially halfway through uh, you just heard from a November 15th Queen's University event called Who Needs a Poem and uh, first hour you heard readings by this was uh, let me preface this this was initiated uh, uh, by the Queen's uh, fall term writer-in-residence, Kanisha Lubrin, and she invited Robin Richardson, Leslie Bellow, and uh, Kay Callow uh, in, uh, for readings in the first hour, and then, uh, and I said discussion, but I like her terminology better because it was a conversation, so... 
so a conversation in the second hour and a few minutes at the very end there for just uh, a few questions from the audience as well. And so uh, uh, you heard uh, two parts, uh, both halves, and I was able to get it all in. So I'm glad it all worked out that way. What I would like to do is uh, remind uh, you that uh, we are still uh, in our funding drive and uh, we uh, are fundraising uh, strictly online this year at our website www.cfrc.ca and you'll find the page and for ways you can help out uh, the provincial uh, changes uh, to universities and fees is has had a big effect and uh, although it's maybe going to get changed around, but it's had a big effect this year. So check out the page. Everything is there, www.cfrc.ca. You have been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Credits Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. Everett here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. We do stream live online at that same website, www.cfrc.ca. And just a reminder that both hours of today's show will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. Please stay tuned for two hours of East Coast music with host Rob Carnell in a show called Saltwater Music. And uh, it's a great show. Hope you can stay tuned for that. Have a great week. Again, thanks for tuning in. Catch you here next week. CFRC 101.9 FM's annual funding drive starts the week of November 3rd. The Student Choice Initiative has put a big dent in our coffers and we need your support to maintain operations, increase local news, sports and arts coverage, and to continue providing programs, services and training for community members seeking to share their voices, perspectives, services and more for the benefit of the whole community. Please help by donating online through our GoFundMe campaign, found through our website, www.cfrc.ca, and through social media. We need your help more than ever. Donate this November. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.